Trace, a coming-of-age story set in the turbulent times of the last days of the Kingdom of Granada. That's coming up next right here on The Right Stuff. Welcome to The Right Stuff. I'm the queen, Parker J. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we're going to be talking to my returning guest co-host, Secretary of today, Colin Clark. He is the author of this book called Trace. And let me tell you, dear listener, you are going to love this one. If you love historical fiction, if you love literary fiction, if you love them both together, Trace is the one for you. I can't wait to tell you more about it in just a few moments. As always, we'd like to thank our Patreon team for their support. We have been showcasing Christian authors worldwide for the past nine years, and as God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. To find out how you can help us, simply go to patreon.com slash right stuff to see what you can do. And as always, we cover your prayers. To stay up to date with PJC Media, simply go to pjcmedia.net, click on that pink follow button, and you'll never, ever have to miss a show. Subscribe to our new YouTube channel at PJC Media and find out exclusive, extended content, and more. Go ahead, subscribe today, and click that notification bell so you'll never, ever have to miss a show. And so without further ado, I'm going to introduce my guest co-host today. Colin, how are you doing today? Doing great, Parker. How are you? I am fine. Thank you so much for being with me again this time. It's been a minute since you've been on the show. Been a bit. <laughs> the last time you were on, we did a wonderful series about romance. It was from an article that you had did back in 2015, I think, maybe 2019 even, but it's such a great article. And now you're back again with your newest book. So very exciting times for you. Yes, Absolutely. So what has been happening since the last time you've been on the show? Well, okay. So the romance article was fairly recently, I think. But if you're talking about what I've been up to since the last time I presented a book on the show, there's been a lot that's going on. And what Trace is, is it's what I call a dual platform project. The thing is, is that I think your listeners might not know that I'm also a musician, a composer. I write music for orchestra, and I've recorded albums, and I play different instruments and so on. And back when I wrote The Muslims, I was trying to be an author and trying to be a musician separately, doing two different things. And it was very hard. Not only do you have to do both of those things, you have to promote both of those things. And if you're trying to promote two different things on two different platforms, it's very hard. And I finally hit on the bright idea of, hey, why don't I combine them, combine writing and music. How can I do that? How can I write a book that I could write music to? What would that even look like? And that kind of is how Trace came about, actually. And I should let our listeners know, I had the opportunity to read Trace in its infancy, if you will. So I read one of the earlier drafts of the story. And reading it again, it just lets you know just how wonderful this tale is. And to you, dear listener, I should tell you, Trace actually inspired one of my books called The Butcher's Daughter. 
And when I told Colin this, he was a bit surprised because they're two different eras, two different writing styles. But I was so inspired by his story that I just had to kind of follow in the same vein as him. So I'm really thankful that Colin wrote Trace and that I was able to be invigorated by his own style to create my own. And that's a fantastic book. That's a fantastic book. You need to plug that book, Parker. <laughs> I don't know who's interviewing you, but... Uh... I, I loved that book and just the amount of research I had to do was really good. And it's probably, like I said, it was from reading Trace and being in an era I was not very familiar with and being surrounded by cultures I'm not familiar with, particularly in a historical context, really inspired me to do something similar. I wanted to write something that a lot of people didn't know anything about. And with the Kingdom of Granada, it's not something you talk about every day. No, but the historians will say that the Middle Ages ended with the Battle of Bosworth Field in England in 1485, when the forces of Henry Tudor defeated the forces of Richard III over in England. And that's nice, and that's a great story, very climactic battle. But to me, personally, if I could object to the consensus, to me, the fall of Granada in 1492 really defines the end of the medieval era, more than the Battle of Bosworth Field. When Granada fell, Spain became a nation, right? That's the political reality that separates the Renaissance from the medieval world. Nation states instead of principalities and rulers with lands all over the place is sort of patchwork of medieval Europe. Now you have this unification under a, a single culture and a single language. That's what happened when Granada fell. So let's talk about Granada for a minute. What is the political historical background of Granada? Fascinating. I'm going to start gushing about my own. Gush, gush away. That's the whole point. <laughs> Here's the thing. If you go into history a little bit, you're going to hear about some Spanish history. You're going to hear about something about, called the Reconquista. The Reconquista is when the Spanish Catholic Christians began to push back the Arab Muslim invasion that had had to happen centuries before. There's a lot of irony here because the Arabs invaded Spain, took it over, drove the Spanish back into the very northern corner of the peninsula, dominated, enslaved many of them, many thousands of them, took over, and then created an absolutely brilliant culture, okay? The greatest doctors, physicians, scientists in Europe, right through the Middle Ages, were all in Spain. The first university ever in Europe was founded in Spain, okay? The first experiments that we have record of tempting a manned flight happened in Andalus. Andalus was that kingdom, that, that region of uh, Spain, which consisted almost of the entirety of Spain at the beginning. That's Muslim Spain, Andalus is Muslim Spain, and it was a brilliant culture. It was militaristic. You know, they conquered and they drove the Spanish out of their homes, or they took over and sort of made them subservient to them. But then they created this brilliant civilization. And within this civilization, there was a degree of tolerance and interplay between the Christian faith, Christian civilization, Jewish faith, Jewish civilization, and the Muslim faith, Arab civilization. They were collaborating and sharing ideas and information successfully with each other in different times and in different places. I don't want to overstate that because it wasn't, it wasn't a happy honeymoon all the time. And it wasn't all always, you know, rainbows and jelly beans. There was lots of violence in play, but it did happen. It did happen in certain times and in certain places. And it contrasts with Renaissance Spain when the Jewish people were expelled entirely from Spain 
or they were persecuted by the Inquisition. And ultimately, all Spanish Muslims were expelled as well. That is the big difference. So what time period are we looking at when we talk about the... So I, I just kind of laid out the basic picture of the Reconquista there. The Spanish gradually began to push back uh, at the Arabs, and begin to drive them back and begin to kind of reconsolidate their control over the peninsula. The irony of Granada is that Granada was not a Spanish place that got taken over by the Arabs. In other words, Granada was not founded by the Christian Spanish people, okay? It was actually founded, there's some confusion, but it was either founded by Jewish people or it was founded by the Muslim rulers of the area or a combination of the two. And the irony of this, Parker, is that Granada at the beginning was explicitly created to be an ally of Castile, which was the dominant Catholic Spanish kingdom. So for a, a long time, you have this Muslim Arab kingdom, Granada, that is in alliance with Castile. So when Castile went to war, Granada would go to war and fight alongside Castile against Castile's enemies. So that we're talking about Christians and Muslims in a military alliance together, fighting sometimes against rival Muslim kingdoms and sometimes against uh, rival Christian kingdoms. But they're in alliance together. And then as things happen in the Middle Ages, gradually the alliance soured and they became enemies. Until you get to the point, the, the period that is depicted in the book, the late 1480s and into 1491 and 1492, when Castile has decided to conquer Granada, take it over and claim it for Spain. When you have a clash of worldviews, a clash of faith, it's very difficult to have them come in alignment together. But here's a unique situation where that worked most of the time. Sometimes it didn't because these are issues that are not superficial. They're actually very deep, thought-provoking things because it helps you navigate reality and navigate the world around you. If you have a certain belief system, your life is going to reflect that belief system. And so I can understand how these things will clash. But in Trace, you have a unique situation happening here. So let's go ahead and just dig into this story. So for my dear listeners out there, this story is told and it's told as a storyteller. So one thing that you're going to find out right away is someone is telling a story and they're telling a story to someone you don't know quite yet. <laughs> and uh, it's sort of mystery here. And that narrator sometimes interrupts the narrative, but he never breaks the fourth wall, something like that. If he does break the fourth wall, you're like, get back to the story. <laughs> so lots of good stuff is going on here. So tell us about Trace. Yeah. So one thing that I noticed when I started researching the time period, almost every literary document from that period has this quality. You know, you think about Cervantes, you know, Don Quixote. Cervantes is telling the story. He is present, you know, in the narrative himself. It's as if you're sitting with him and you're, you're listening to him tell you about Don Quixote and Sancho Panza and, and all of that. And another book that I admire very much is um, The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. I grew up with the movie, loved the movie, and then I finally read the book as an adult. And um, Tom Wolfe himself is a very educated, you know, I don't want to say upper crust, but he is, he is an educated, literate, sophisticated guy who, when you hear him talk, he talks like an English, English language expert, sophisticated guy. But when you read The Right Stuff, it sounds like you're at a bar and you're listening to a former you know, test pilot tell you about this era. 
there's nothing that puts you in a time period or in a place more than the feeling that you're being told about a time and a place by somebody who's from there. So that was the first thing that I hit on. I just want this to feel like someone from this time is telling you this story. So I wound up doing things that I wouldn't normally do in a story. He weighs in more on stuff. He says, this is, this is how this was, and this is what I think, in a way that maybe a modern sort of transparent narration wouldn't have done. Plus, there's the element of eavesdropping onto a conversation, because the narrator directs all of his conversation to Miguel, who is the one that is the story is being told to. And then it's interspersed with epigraphs. And these epigraphs are actually quite important to the narrative, even though they don't seem as if they have anything to do with it. Tell us about the epigraphs. The epigraphs. Okay. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to, this is a little Easter egg for the listeners and for the future fans of Trace as, who are reading this as it comes out. I came into a serious problem at the end of book three, in the climax of the whole story. There was a historical character, this is a real person, Gonzalo de Cordoba, who was known to Spanish history as El Gran Capitan, and that means the great captain. He's a hero of Spanish history. He was instrumental in the final days of Granada. He fought in those battles, he fought against Granada, he did other things after that. And the need to kind of root my story in actual history, I decided to bring him into the story. Well, he comes in in the last chapter of the story, and he plays a critical role in the whole way that the story ends, the way that the whole thing is wrapped up. And what I found in the first draft through was, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I've got to, I've got to lay down, I've got to explain Gonzalo de Cordoba. And I've got to tell everybody who he is and why he's here, what he's done and what he thinks. And so there was a lot of exposition at a place where the exposition really should be done. We shouldn't be hearing about new stuff in the final chapter, you know. And uh, so that was a major problem with the first draft. And so I thought, okay, how can I get the reader familiar with Gonzalo de Cordoba before we ever see him? That's what I want to do. So I rewrote it with these epigraphs in place. So we're learning about him through the course of the story. And, you know, I want there to be kind of a tension, like, why do I keep hearing about this guy? What's the deal? Why is he there? Why do we have these epigraphs? And then at the last part of the book, bam, all of a sudden, oh, here he is. Okay, now I understand. That's the idea. The epigraphs also give you an idea of what to expect. So it does have like a harbinger type of element in the story, but not quite. They don't always fall exactly in that way, but they do kind of give you the theme of the chapter or the theme of the section of the story that we're a part of. Now, throughout the story, we're following the exploits of a little boy, and his name is Rui Diaz. That's right. And Rui Diaz is about 10 years old when we first meet him, and he's with his rather interesting, complex father, and yes. his name is Tomas. Tomas, yeah. Tomas is an interesting character. He's very much a dynamic part of Rui's life, as any father should be. And he helps shape Rui into the young man he is, but in a very unique way. So tell us a little bit about Rui and then contrast that with Thomas's, Tomas's disposition. I wanted Rui to represent universal moral values. I wanted Rui to do something inspiring. I'm going to try not to give away the story, but I wanted Rui to do something inspiring in the course of the story, something that's deeply meaningful for people that know and care nothing whatever about Spanish history. I wanted the story to have a universal significance and a universal meaning. 
And that runs against the grain of depicting people as they were in a particular historical period. Because, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to depict a typical citizen of Florence in 1480, what they would have thought, what they would have worn, where they would have gone, what they would have cared about, that's the opposite of universal. That's the particular. So the challenge is, first of all, to explain how it's possible that Rui Diaz could have done something very sort of outside of the norms of his culture, right? How could he do that? And then we also need something to kind of measure Rui against. In other words, we need someone who is characteristic of that time and place in order to measure how Rui is different in his own particular way. And so Tomas, his father, I think was the natural um, vehicle for that. Tomas is the diving board, the springboard that Rui begins on, but then also departs from. And Rui is an intelligent young man, and he is extremely observant of people around him. Whereas Tomas is more concerned about his own interest and his own agenda that he's trying to put forth, Rui is the exact opposite. And one thing we find out, it's not a spoiler or anything, that his mom passed away some years ago. And when his mom passed away, you can only get the idea that Rui must have some of his mother in him. Because if he had all of Tomas in him, then him and Tomas would probably get along a lot better than they do. But Rui is extremely respectful of his father, which is something that comes throughout the book as you continue to read it. And one thing is that because you're reading the book through the eyes of a child, there are some things that aren't quite clear. And I kind of like that a little bit because we're learning things in the same way and at the same pace that Rui is learning that. Was that a deliberate thing? Absolutely. The beginner's mistakes of historical fiction are having someone stand up and say, well, as you know, character number two, we here do this and we do that such and such and in such and such a way. You know, how do you get across the idea of how things were and how do you depict that in an experience when everyone is already accustomed to this very strange, very foreign world from our point of view? Well, the great thing is, and I think Steven Spielberg figured this out a long time ago, kids are fantastic. If you can work kids into your historical narrative, they're discovering their own world and you can discover the world along with them. And it's not out of place because that's what we do as children. We're learning to navigate the world. And navigating that world becomes an important part of Bruges, which is a Flemish town. And he has been in this town for a very long time. But his father always has said, they're going to go back to Spain. They're going to go back to Spain. And Spain is Nirvana. It is heaven. It is the best place ever that Rui has been taught. But when he goes on this journey, he learns that what he has been taught what his fantasies are, do not correspond to real life. And I think when he does this, it's a really interesting dynamic because we learn that the world is not what we think it is. And I think every child struggles with that. So you have this childlike attitude that meets real world consequences. <laughs> so there's a lot going on with Rui here. Now, dear listener, there's more to this story. And as Colin mentioned earlier in our broadcast, he's also a musician. So he created a wonderful concerto that 
goes along with the book Trace. Go ahead and tell us something about that. Yeah, well, that is the other half of the dual platform project that I'm trying out here. And actually, so, you know, in music, we talk about there's a thing called programmatic music. And that's where you write music based on a story. But I actually did the opposite. I wrote a story based on music. Many years ago, I traveled to Jerusalem with my wife in uh, 1998, many years ago. And I discovered an instrument called the oud, and I fell in love with it. The oud is the Arabic lute, the uh, Middle Eastern equivalent of the lute or the guitar. And I brought it home with me, and I eventually learned to play it, and it became my main instrument. I've recorded albums with the oud. I've performed all over the world with it. And I love the instrument, and it's just incredibly rich in history. But I found that as I began to compose with the oud, I found myself drawn to the period of history when the Oud was in Spain and when these cultures were mixing and mingling and the possibility that I could use the Oud and compose music on it that didn't just suggest its Arabic origin, but also suggested its context and its interaction with other cultures in Spain. So a Jewish influence, a European influence, and an Arabic influence, all mingling together on this instrument. And I began to compose these Spanish-inflected oud pieces that were kind of unique, a little bit separate, a little bit distinct from what you normally hear played on the oud. And so when I began to think about what kind of a dual-platform project could I do, these Spanish-inflected oud pieces, this was what I thought. I thought, okay. And I just had the vague idea, just the vaguest notion of friends, positive. There are people in Spain. The oud is there. They love music and they're friends. And we're talking about Jewish people, Catholic people, and Muslim people being friends together. And that was kind of, that was just the vaguest notion in my mind when I began to write these pieces. I thought that was a good image, a positive image. So then once the pieces were written, okay, well, now we need to write a story. Well, what kind of a story? And I thought, okay, well, yeah, let's write a story about people being friends in Spain at a time when the Oud was still in Spain, when the Oud was being played in Spain. So I found out when that was. And that era, when you have the Oud in Spain, that ends with the fall of Granada, January 4th, 1492. After that, you don't really have the Oud in Spain because you don't really have Muslims in Spain anymore. Okay, so how can... This is a period... This is warfare. This is conflict. You have the Spanish Inquisition persecuting the Jewish Spanish population. You have the war, the Granada War, when Castile is trying to conquer Granada and Granada is fighting back. How could people be friends? Were people friends? Were Muslim people and Catholic people friends in this time period when their two civilizations were fighting? Well, the answer is actually yes, because there were people called renegados and desperados who were of Christian origin, who had fled to Granada and fought with Granada in their war against Spain. And there were all kinds of other examples. There were examples of Arab Muslim people who had gone over to Castile and converted to Catholicism. So all this was going on, but I thought, yeah, I mean, so yes, it happened. But on the other hand, how can we make it plausible? How can we make it believable? And how can we make it positive? Rather than being some kind of political necessity or exigency, how can we make it natural? And I thought, well, the way to do it, I think, would be kids, because kids don't understand politics. 
if you tell them these people are bad and you have to hate them, you have to teach hatred to children. They don't naturally hate other kids when they see them. And so that makes the whole situation more plausible. Three boys, one of them Catholic, one of them Muslim, one of them Jewish, and they become friends in Granada. And once I came up with that little idea, which was, again, inspired by the music, then I had the idea for a story. And then it was just, now, now how do I write this story? Now, what's the story? Then that became the rest of it. Now, what's really interesting, dear listener, is that if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, we're going to have a segment where we're going to play each part of this concerto that goes along with this book, Trace, The Drums of Granada. That's the first book of the series, Drums of Granada. Now, the story doesn't end in The Drums of Granada. Tell us about the other two books in the series. Yeah, the other two books in the series. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I'm just going to tell you, a long time ago, I started a science fiction series called Ferratus. that was supposed to be a three-book series. I still haven't finished that. <laughs> there were people that bought the first book back in the day, and they, some of them have said, hey, when is the next book coming out? And that kind of got bogged down. I, I'm not going to go into that any, but the entire series of Trace is going to come out this year. The second book and the third book are basically done. They need to be revised a little bit, but the story is done. And so the second book, the first book basically describes the formation of the Tres Ios de Granada, the three sons of Granada, which is the name of their little group. That's what the story is about. That's what the title means, Tres, the three. That's how the Tres came together, the first book. The second book kind of just follows their, their friendship, the three boys playing together, what they discover together, what they pursue together, what I imagine a friend, how I imagine a friendship of that sort might have played out in Granada in the final years of Granada. Then the last book depicts the fall of Granada itself and how that affects the Tres and what becomes of them. So the second book is called The Songs of Granada, and there will be actual songs of Granada, at least the poetry will be that are, that are poets from Granada that's in the book. And then in the third book is called The Trumpets of Granada. And so the trumpets have to do with the fanfares, the armies, and the final defense of Granada before it falls. So for our listeners out there, there's a lot planned for this story, for this book, and I can't wait to read them all. And I already know that I can tell Colin's going to break my heart. I told him this before. No, no, I'm not going to. I won't. You promise? Okay. But I don't know. No, you can't promise that. There's no way you can promise that. You're a writer. There's no way you can do that. <laughs> Absolutely no way. What did you say in the pre-interview? Writers are sadistic? Yeah, writers are sadistic, quite uh, quite much so. And people don't believe me when I say that. They think, oh, you're just being dramatic. I said, no, we're not. <laughs> this is, uh, for lack of a better term, writers do have, quote, unquote, a God complex. And it's a rather unique trait to writers. Uh, uh, painters have their own quirks and singers have their own quirks and musicians have their own quirks. You know, Collins hit with both because he, he's a musician and a writer, so he gets it. <laughs> so, and so I'm looking forward to reading the rest of the series. Can neither confirm nor deny in this particular instance. And this instance, yeah, because something will happen and just as inspiration, you'll go, you know what? It's better just to stab her in her heart right now, make Parker fry. <laughs> It's better for the story. <laughs> That's what you'll say. You know? You'll say something like that. It's better for the story by stabbing a heart here. 
So I can't wait to read the rest of the series, Colin. Now, people want to connect with you. Where can they find you online? So I have a somewhat semi-dormant author page on Facebook that I'm going to be ramping up. But I have a channel on YouTube that I've been building this year. And the primary purpose of the channel is to promote Trace. So if you look for Callan Clark on uh, YouTube, you'll find my videos. You'll find out all about what the Oud is. And you'll find uh, Trace-specific videos, specific videos where I share my thoughts about the book and kind of give a little bit more background about the project itself. And you also get to hear the musical development of the Trace project as it's coming into being. You mentioned the Concerto Daro that I wrote in 2018 when I was writing the first draft. There are still two concertos to be written, and they're going to be written this year. And I'm going to be blogging and vlogging the composition of those concerti this year. So I would steer people towards my YouTube channel on YouTube. In the last moments we have left, what I would like you to do is encourage our author friends out there whom God has given the gift to write to pick up the pen and do so. They used to say during the Regency era of England, when the English novel was really starting to become a popular form, and I'm talking about the days of Samuel Johnson and these people, they used to say in England, everyone has at least one novel in them. And what that really means is everyone has a story to tell. And, you know, I really think that that's true. And I think that for Christians, for believers, to tell your story to the world is a little bit more frightening and it's a little bit more challenging than it used to be because uh, our culture is uh, turning against Christianity. It's turning against the values that are embodied in the gospel. But I think the thing to remember in all of this is that if you feel hesitation and anxiety about sharing who you are in Christ through your fiction, you feel a little bit of trepidation about the prospect of talking about your faith through the creative process of the novel. Remember that you're talking to a nation of people that all feel the same way, regardless of where they are, regardless of what they believe. And when you share who you are and what you believe, when you do it transparently and sincerely, and genuinely, you know, without, without conceit and also without judgment, and to, to just be as faithful as you can to the message that God has given you, that's inspiring. It's not just inspiring to Christians. It's inspiring to everybody. It's very much worth doing. You might come to the end of your life and realize that it might have been the most important thing you did or one of the most important things. That's what I think. I try to remember that everybody in America is scared to say who they really are and what they really think, because there's so many people in power now who are trying to control everybody else on both sides of the coin. And I think that when we stand up and when we just be honest about who we are, we make a little bit of light in the world. We demonstrate freedom, and in demonstrating freedom, we make freedom a little bit more possible. So that's what I would say. I can't think of a better way to end the show today. And those are just wonderful words of inspiration. And to you, dear listener, make sure you go to our YouTube channel because we're going to have a special segment where we're going to be listening to the concerto that goes along with traits. Make sure you go ahead 
get your copy today. Colin, thank you so much for being with me on the show. And I really enjoyed having you. Can't wait to have you back and have you back real soon. Thank you, Parker. And we were talking today to Colin Clark. He is the author of Trace. The first book is called The Drums of Granada. It's available online wherever books are sold. So make sure you go ahead and pick up your copy today. You're going to love it. And then make sure this is going to be a stacked feature. So it's not just the book. You're going to get the music as well. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can hear that music exclusively on YouTube. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen, Parker J. And you have a wonderful, absolutely glorious, blessed day.